What is best in life? There are a thousand ways we can answer that question, but there's a view of the world that has answered that question, what is best in life, is to crush your enemies, to see them fleeing before you, and to hear the lamentation of their women. This is the answer that Arnold Schwarzenegger gave in the movie Conan the Barbarian. And while a fictional character, he was actually paraphrasing something that was said by the Mongolian warlord Genghis Khan. But not only was this mistreatment of your enemies in vogue on the Asian steppe, it was also prevalent in the Greco-Roman world. In the 5th century BC, a Greek writer named Xenophon said that virtue is to outdo your friends in kindness and to outdo your enemies in mischief. Archaeologists have found in different parts of the Roman Empire what they call curse tablets. These etchings where people have petitioned to the gods to bring misfortune down on their enemies. One such man was so disappointed that he had lost his gloves that he asked the gods to catch the thief and to, to drive them mad and to make them go blind. Now we may be tempted to think to ourselves, well, Thank God that in our 21st century sophistication, we no longer hold these types of grudges, and nor are we so quick to think in categories of us versus them. But of course, the briefest peek at social media will tell you that that indeed is not the case. We are so quickly divided over a variety of so many different things, cultural issues, ethics, um, politics, interpretations of science, religion, philosophy. We're so divided. And the problem is not that we are divided. And the problem is not that we share our opinion, nor is the problem that we critique specific ideas and show where they might be deficient. The problem is that very often we go beyond critiquing an idea and we go on to dehumanize those who hold them. We curl up our lips and talk about people as those people. And we might have different names for them, not, usually not, not so flattering. And of course, we're often emboldened uh, and braver to confront our opponents when we're behind the keyboard of our computer. But then, of course, there are those face-to-face real-life flesh-and-blood enemies that we have, people who mistreat us, uh, people who remind you of that bully you thought you left behind in the fourth grade, that co-worker who always gets under your skin, always seems to be going after the, pro- the promotion that you're looking at. And often the most painful ones are, at times there were people who were once close to you and you had this falling out, and you now painfully put them in the category of enemies. And I'm sure that for those who were alive on September 11th of 2001, you suddenly realized, I'm in a world where somebody hates me, and I have an enemy. And it seems that the natural thing for us would be to do something like write our own curse tablets and petition to God to spank our enemies and send them to their rooms until they realize that they are in the wrong and we are vindicated. But Jesus 
drops a bomb on all of that when he says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. He says, even your father makes it rain on the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous, so that when you love your enemies, you are bearing the family resemblance of your father. This was a countercultural teaching, a revolution, a shock to everyone who heard it. And even secular scholars today will tell you that this teaching originated with Jesus. And its message is prevalent for us even today in a very divided culture. And on a day like Good Friday, also appropriate, because Good Friday is about a man who loved his enemies to the extent that he died for them. But of course, this teaching lived on through Jesus' disciples. His follower, uh, Peter, wrote in a letter that we call 1 Peter in, verse, uh, or in chapter 3, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing. It seems that in between the time when the teaching left the lips of Jesus and the time when Peter wrote this down, Peter himself had to learn this over time. It wasn't exactly natural for him right away. And that brings us to the passage we'll read together tonight. It, the setting is, Jesus has celebrated a Passover feast with his disciples, and he has gone out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray on the night that he was arrested. And so tonight we're looking at Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. There are a number of things worth noticing in the, around this passage. First of all, this passage is, or this event is mentioned in all four of the Gospels, but they all give us different details. Uh, and by different, I don't mean contradictory details, but just different, they're like different pieces that form one puzzle. For example, Luke is the only gospel that tells us that Jesus heals the man. John is the gospel where we find out which one of the disciples it was who cut the man's ear. It was Peter. I'm sure we're all shocked. But John is also the one who tells us the name of the servant of the high priest, that it was Malchus. And this is a, an ancient form almost of giving a footnote Again, marking this passage as eyewitness testimony. But there's another thing to notice about this passage. Thinking about the emotional and psychological state of Jesus in this moment. Because if we read a number of verses before this, we see to say that Jesus is stressed out is an understatement. Jesus was in agony. He was in anguish. He was sweating so profusely that his sweat was like drops of blood. He, as he prayed to the Father, if there's any other way, 
Let this cup pass from me. But not what I will, but what you will. But Jesus here was under tremendous pressure, and clearly he was shaken. And it's interesting because others have pointed out the fact that many throughout history have gone to their deaths in a relatively calm and serene manner. Socrates was trading ironic one-liners with his friends before he would sip the hemlock that would kill him. Jesus' followers in the centuries to come would go to their deaths singing hymns. And this is really uncharacteristic of Jesus because Jesus throughout his life was very brave, very calm. He set his face like flint as he went to Jerusalem. This is the Jesus who took a nap in a, in a boat during a storm and calmly with a word got up and calmed the storm. This is Jesus who faced a legion of demons and cast them out. This is Jesus who doesn't share our culture's fear of public speaking. And this is Jesus who is never flustered at any debate or any trap that his opponents set for him. Why all of a sudden is this unshakable man suddenly shaken? Well, there's a commentator named William Lane who invites us to consider the dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing cups springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the judgment that Jesus assumes. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal and found hell rather than heaven open for him. And he staggered. Jesus was keenly aware that he was facing something deeper and more profound than death. But with all that considered, we have to be really impressed with what Jesus does in this passage under this tremendous pressure. Because I, I, I evaluate myself in my own life, and I, I know that I'm not good under pressure. <laughs> I'm not good during moments of stress, especially surprising stress and surprising chaos. I'm not you know, quick on my feet, quickly make decisions. I remember the, more, the Memorial Day tornadoes a few years ago. My wife woke me up and said, Chad, there's a tornado, get the girls and take them to the basement. I did not immediately do what she said, and I cannot begin to tell you why. I don't know if it was I wanted confirmation that there actually was a tornado. I don't know if I was considering, well, how do I wake them up without panicking them? Or if I was still kind of asleep and I wasn't processed what she's saying. I don't know. All I know is that I froze. But about a minute later, she says, well, what are you doing? <laughs> Go get the girls and take them to the basement. And then I did. But I realized I, realized I could never be a quarterback. I'm, I'm just not good under pressure. But I, I consider the pressure that Jesus was under and the fact that in spite of the, this pressure, he still had his wits about him to heal the man's ear. I mean, honestly, no one could blame him if he left it alone. After all, he had his own problems to deal with. And we also wouldn't blame him that if in his heart Jesus said, 
Yeah, that's what you get for being part of this mob who is carrying out this injustice. But Jesus heals the man. Jesus' ministry is full of miracles and healings, but I think it's very profound that his last miracle, his last healing, was for a man he could have considered an enemy. A couple of weeks ago, Mike talked about invitation and challenge. It's the mode of operation of Jesus in making disciples, invitation and challenge, relationship and responsibility. The same Jesus who began his ministry by inviting his disciples, come and follow me, is the same Jesus who at the end of his ministry challenges them, go and make disciples. The same Jesus who invites by saying, come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest, is the same Jesus that challenges, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But another thing with this is that with every invitation, there is an implicit challenge. And with every challenge, there is an implicit invitation. With Peter, the challenge is clear. Here in this, what we read, Jesus says, that is enough. In the other gospels, he says, Peter, drop your sword. The one who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Peter, shall I not drink the cup that my father is giving me? Peter, do you not suppose I could call a legion of angels to come and rescue me? Essentially, Peter, your violence will not solve the violence done to me. Your chaos will not cast out chaos. Humanity has tried this for all time, and it doesn't work. We're going to do things a new way. This isn't how things work in my kingdom. But the implicit invitation is, look, Peter, I know it's hard to love your enemies, but retaliation that the world has lived with forever, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, ear for an ear, retaliation is exhausting. This cycle of retaliation, it never ends. Peter, I'm inviting you to be liberated from that exhausting retaliation. With Malchus, Jesus leads with invitation and the healing of his ear. Malchus, I know you have come out against me, but I want you whole. But as you can imagine, for Malchus, there is also a challenge. Because for the rest of his life, whenever he would, you know, brush at his hair and perhaps graze his ear, or whenever he would swat away at a gnat by his ear, he would remember why that ear was still attached. And he would be challenged with the question, who was this man? Was he, as the Jewish leaders say, a blasphemous rebel? Or was he, as the pilgrims greeted him early that week, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Malchus, who do you say he is? You almost have to wonder that if Malchus had mixed feelings about Jesus being arrested after his ear was healed. Like, 
I don't know, maybe he's not such a bad guy. But of course, hours later, Jesus would be nailed to a cross. And the cross is also for us an invitation and a challenge. The invitation is, this is how much you are loved. But the challenge is, this is how much it costs. It's how much it costs for your sins to be forgiven. The invitation is, this is how much grace has been extended to you. The challenge is, what will you now do with this expensive gift? The invitation is, as the book of Romans says, we were an enemy of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the invitation is, you were an enemy, but now you are loved. The challenge is, now go and do likewise. If, you, if, if the means of your salvation was one man loving his enemies, will you scorn the means of your salvation by refusing to do the same? two stories. One is about the power that God grants us to forgive our enemies and to love them. The other is about the effect that this teaching can have, the inspiration of the teaching of loving your enemies. I'm sure many of you have heard of Corrie Ten Boom. She and her family were put in Nazi concentration camps because they were Christians who were hiding Jewish people from the Nazis. Amen, brother. I'm glad you're a Christian. They were hiding Jewish people. And, but after um, she was you know, freed from the camps, she went around telling her story. And in her book, The Hiding Place, she writes, it was at a church service in Munich that I saw him a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, my sister Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, Beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to people the need to forgive, kept mine at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I, I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed, a silent prayer, Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. 
while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. He doesn't only give us the command, he gives us the love itself. The next story is about a man, Mitsuo Fuchida. Mitsuo Fuchida was a Japanese aviator, a bomber pilot, the man who was the designer and the leader of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And after the war, he went back to live on his family's chicken farm, but in the years to come, he would go and be reunited with some of his fellow friends in the Japanese military, some who were in American POW camps. And he met a friend, and he expected to hear of the tortures and the mistreatments by the Americans to him. But what he learned was on the contrary, that, that his friend was treated relatively well. And his friend told him about a woman, an American social worker named Peggy Koval. And, and his friend was, had a conversation with her saying, we're supposed to be enemies. Why are you so kind to me? And Peggy Koval told her story. Her, her parents were American missionaries to Japan. And when the threat of the war came, they fled to the Philippines, but they were hunted down and beheaded. So for a while, Peggy Koval held this bitterness and this anger, but eventually she remembered the teaching of her Savior. She needed to love her enemies. And for her, just the idea of that wasn't enough. She needed to go and practice that. So she decided to volunteer at POW camps. When Mitsuo Fuchida heard this, he couldn't even, he didn't have categories for it. He couldn't understand it because he lived under the Bushido Code, the Code of the Samurai, that said not only is it permissible, it is honorable for you to pronounce a sevenfold curse over your enemies. Loving your enemies wasn't even a thing. Later, he would once receive a pamphlet, a pamphlet that he found that was written by uh, an American soldier named Jacob DeShazer. And Jacob DeShazer was um, taken in prison by the Japanese and was you know, mistreated and tortured for years. And of course, he began to hate his captors. But one day, Jacob received a Bible and he read it. And he himself became a Christian. And he began to pray for his guards. He began to love them. And after he would be beaten by them, he would tell them that I love you and God loves you. And he determined that after the war, after his release, he would return to Japan as a missionary. And he did for 30 years. But when Mitsuo Fuchida read this, again, he's just like, I, I can't begin to, what's with these Christians? <laughs> but he learned from the pamphlet that you could learn more about this from the Bible. So Mitsuo Fuchida got himself a Bible. And of course, there was much of it he didn't understand. But he read the account of Jesus hanging on the cross and crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Matsuo Fuchida wept. He says, this was me at Pearl Harbor. I didn't know what I was doing. 
And he became a Christian. And he became an evangelist. He told his story around the world, even told his story in America. And eventually he met up and became good friends with Jacob Deschazer. So imagine that, the architect and the leader of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which many of us grieve about every December, that man is our brother in Christ. And he, and he died in 1976, but today he's with the Lord. How do you get your head around that? So, if the Lord can empower Corey Tenboom to extend forgiveness to her captor, to her guards, and the Lord can work to form a friendship between Mitsuo Fujita and Jacob the Sager, who should be enemies, according, you know, according to the laws of the battlefield. If the Lord can do that, is there any division in your life that the Lord doesn't have power in? Is there any wound you have that the Lord can't heal? It's easy to love those who love us. And it's easy to hate those who hate us. And it's also, it's, it, it's hard to love those who hate us. But lastly, if you think about it, for most people, for most people, it's hard to hate those who love you. It's, it's difficult to mistreat those who are so kind to you. So what if we learned to love those who hate us? It may be that they don't hate us for long. And as we experience this kind of reconciliation and as we do this thing that, that Jesus has done for us, he is shown as he truly is. Glorious. Let us pray.